This is Shaka Ward Speak. That was a great song. Not to be rolling. 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 Anyhow. You mean that song, Rolling in the Deep? I don't know, dude. Um, <laughs> Tina. I just got Tina Tina Turner um, doing those like amazing moves with yeah. uh, like um, having um, like the frilly dress T Rex arms because yeah. they're like super pulled in and short. And they're like, left a good job in the city. All right. Yeah, what are we doing today? Well, uh, we, you heard, you yeah. just heard what we're doing today. Yeah, it's you design stuff day. We're 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 jumping in again, and uh, we got another person that uh, we're just going to take a few quotes from, and um, yeah, just just kind of unpack them and, and talk about how they relate, and you know, well, what we think is good, what we think may not be good. You know, yeah, what whatever. do we think about it? It's, yeah, so that's just uh, you know, it's just a bunch of design stuff. Okay, so um, we got Saul Bass this week. Uh, so for this episode, we got Saul Bass, um, and it's one of those guys again, another guy who, if you don't know the name, you've seen the stuff. Um, so Saul Bass, um, you know, a, a child of Eastern European immigrants, um, born and raised in the United States, grew up in New York, um, attended a lot of the fantastic places, uh, went to the Art Students League in New York, um, where he met a bunch of other people that were very important, like uh, uh, Lester Beale, Gary Kepish, um, Paul Rand. So that whole like mid-century sort of troop of people that were really defining how design looked um, in a lot of ways. So he uh, started doing a whole bunch of logos, started doing a whole bunch of films, uh, film titles, which is probably where most people have interaction with yes. him. Um, and you know, Ryan is a fan of Hitchcock. You... You have seen his work a lot, and if I didn't realize else, I was a fan of his work until <laughs> until you helped me understand this. Well, we're going to learn about him today, but yeah, I I don't think my brain was connecting Saul Bass to yeah, so, so Spartacus, yeah, anyhow, yeah, and it's really great because his his whole theory on um on the film uh, like the introductions of films and the titling is uh, he said you know most of the time this kind of throw away. So if you think about um, yeah, you know, think about the the film titles from It's a Wonderful Life, right? It's literally kind of like a book turning pages. Yes. Right? And sometimes it would just be uh, like hand-painted lettering on a piece of glass that would be held in front um, of the camera so that it would look like you were having this like transparency thing going on before that was really, in terms of film editing, that possible. Mm -hmm. um, so there were a few ways that things were done. But what Saul Bass did is he said, well... Um, when it comes down to it, if you want to have someone really interacting with a film, you should be doing it from the first first frame. Mm -hmm. And so why wouldn't the film start sooner? Mm -hmm. um, and I think he said at one point it was like the, the film titles for most of uh, the time before uh, what he started to do um, were just like the popcorn time, right? Yeah. So everybody's crunching on their popcorn. They're finishing up getting stuff from the concession stand. They're, they're whispering and talking to their friends or whatever. Oh, and now the movie finally starts. Um, and so he, he wanted to introduce a lot more artfulness into it. Um, it's real fast. Just watched North by Northwest yeah. two days ago, showed it to my kids. 
And, you know, that's like, I mean, I love Hitchcock. So, and I told him, this is one of my all time favorite starts to a movie because it's a blue field and there's, ang- uh, you know, diagonal lines coming at an angle, like yeah. left, yeah, left to right going slipping down. And then the text comes on and it's at that same kind of angle. And, you know, there's all this animation happening for like, and it's moving the music. I love the, um, the music as well, like the, mm-hmm. the title track, whatever that plays throughout. And then, and as the, as the blue recedes, it, it kind of like, it's like the uh, the building that's actually in reference to precipitates through the blue and then you're in the city. And it's like, so it's already like doing a work on you, situating you. It's like so good. So yeah. good. And it's fantastic. And then you look at the, the, the style that he sort of introduced yeah. and what he was doing. Um, a lot of his work, um, you see it's like it's impact in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still see, you know, even in, uh, you know, if you've ever watched, Oh man, what is, I'm gonna I'm losing the t- name of it now. Oh no! Um, oh gosh, it was a it was on Adult Swim. It was a it was a, a a cartoon about this like kind of scientist dad, and he had like some kids that were kind of dumb. Uh, Venture Brothers, the Venture Brothers. If you watch the it. opening to that, like it it feels very Saul Bass. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, then you've also got the uh, like a lot of Warner Brothers and Hanna Barbera stuff that really. Had did some of that as well because it relied heavily on a lot of like animation techniques. Yeah, <clears throat> so there was a lot there. Also, just to name a few of the things that he uh, also dealt with, uh, made the logo for AT and T, Bell System, Boys and Girls Club of America, Continental Airlines, Frontier Airlines, Geffen Records, the Girl Scouts, Hanna Barbera, uh, the J Paul Getty Trust, Kleenex, um, Minolta, Quaker Oats, um, United Airlines, the United Way, uh, and Wesson Oil. Wow, and that's just the names that you would immediately Hanna Barbera, dude. Yeah, Johnny that's Quest, a lot. Johnny Quest. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a slight, it's a slight career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a decent career. I mean, it, it's not as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just bold face lying. <laughs> but I think I mean, that, you know, probably the most iconic thing he did was the the poster for Man with the Golden Arm. Um, yeah. Like the lettering is very kind of like cut out construction paper like. Um, very like heavy kind of block color fields. And so it's like all of these really kind of great things. Uh, the Vertigo poster is amazing. Um, Anatomy oh, yeah. of a Murder. Like they're, yes. they're just, they're, they're so fantastic. Uh, he also did, he had a poster that he did for Schindler's List mm. um, back in like what, 93 or something mm-hmm. like that. But it wasn't, it wasn't accepted. Instead they went with the, the very dark one. I think it's just like, the hands maybe yeah that are holding i think that's what the uh, imagine what rejecting saul bass that had to feel good I, I know right it's like well we're gonna go with this one and yeah. he's like well okay i mean i got a history i've been doing this for a while yep but uh i don't know i think his poster is pretty amazing it would be really legit to find one and and have it but um but we do want to get into some of the stuff that you talked about and uh and bat around a few quotes uh so let's just jump right in with this first one okay Interestingly enough, the uh, storyboard for Psycho that I did for Psycho went precisely as I laid it out. And there was no change on that. And so, and frankly, I, I myself at that point didn't even really understand the impact that, that some of these things would have. I thought it was a neat little murder. Uh, and I thought it was pure. I liked its purity. I must say that when it appeared in the uh, in the theater, when I saw the thing in the theater, it really it scared the hell out of me, and apparently of everybody else. So, 
Yeah. Well, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not the way that you usually hear people talk about. <laughs> it's very <laughs> about macabre. Like it's super. So just the way he's talking about it is like lock and step in talking about it with the way that Hitchcock would talk about it. Like yeah. The purity of them. Like it's sort of performance. Like those are performance statements. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It, I think the thing that struck me so much about that is that um, you know, as a designer, I think there's always this thing in the back of your mind that what you put out there is not going to be like wholeheartedly accepted. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be kind of a, a push and pull. There's always a discussion. There's always a, you know, mm-hmm. next round of edits sort of thing. So to, to have something at that level, like a storyboard, which um, is not throwaway in terms of the process mm-hmm. of production, but it's also not something that anybody ever really sees at the end, unless you're just kind of a film nerd. Um, but to have something at that level that, somebody like Alfred Hitchcock just said, no, let's shoot mm-hmm. it as is. Like it's, it's kind of a mind blowing thing. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that it has something to do with the level of designer, the level of the director and the, the kind of mutual respect yeah. that they Sync probably have for each other. Probably even like, yeah, like just completely synced in. Yeah. So whatever understanding of the story there was prior to the, the, uh, setup of that scene, um, it's sort of like saying like there's probably a lot of uh, preemptive work to that moment oh, in, yeah. in actually being synced up. Um, so, so yeah, sorry, go for it. I was just thinking like it means that there's a even if you're just thinking about like the script, which usually the storyboarders would work off of the script. Mm-hmm. If yeah. I understand the process correctly, there was such a strength to the impression that the script was giving as a work that then this designer could come create the storyboards as a response to that. And they would be so fitting with each other that then the guy who made the script would be like, yep, totally matches up. So it, it speaks to sort of like what you were saying around a whole, whole level of processes of like from a rich script to the rich storyboards to mm-hmm. the actual film all fitting together without having to make all these sort of modifications in between. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I yeah. think I'm, I'm, I'm asking this out of ignorance. I mean, you, you were the Hitchcock expert at the table this morning, Ryan, <clears throat> but with that, like, I mean, is, did, did Hitchcock write psycho? Uh, no, like, okay. it was, um, most of Hitchcock's films are based on books. So he would, he would oh, okay. look for, uh, not obscure, but kind of obscure books. They, they had to have that like tweak to them. Mm-hmm that he could bring forward into uh, cinematic, you know, storytelling. So yeah, I forget who wrote Psycho. Um, but that scene, but that scene is like, uh, you know, like that scene is really an interesting thing because it's visceral without being visceral. Mm-hmm. So the way it was written, I mean, you never see the knife toucher at all. Right. You see a speed to the, you see like almost like, um, like a, um, a speed to the gesture mm-hmm. of the knife. Um, it was Anthony Perkins. Yeah. Um, and then you see her, you know, responding and you see all of her emotion in her face. And then mm-hmm. you see like the sink, I mean, the, the, the bathtub, mm-hmm. the, the chocolate syrup or whatever it was. Yeah. I think it was chocolate syrup yeah. for the blood. So you, so you, you move between these two points, but they never connect to each other. Mm-hmm. So you never, you never sense any like, so, not to be, but if you stab some something, mm-hmm. there's a tension before you break through. 
Right. So in this, the, the stabbing has no tension. It's not. It's met with no resistance mm-hmm. because you're never seeing the knife touch the body at all. He's just like waving a knife up and down. Yeah. Um. And so the way the scene splits between these three points, the blood, her response, and the knife just moving, with while being denied access, this it's just a silhouette. Mm-hmm. You can't see who the person is. So you have a silhouette, an action, and a response, and none of them are connecting. In, in the none of them are connecting, which is the key thing that that makes the scene go in terms of reality, which would be everything connecting. Yeah, yeah. So so it's a paradox because nothing connects, but what it does is it it centers you as the connector of those moments, and yeah. it and so it it registers viscerally. Yeah. By being uh, graphic, mm-hmm. like, and I mean, like, almost. Um, storyboard graphic like flat yeah, yeah. it's flat and but it's but the music is right the gesture is right and it's like it's kind of a provocative way of being you know visceral without being visceral yeah without it, being heavy-handed it's literally the opposite of being heavy-handed i mean it's really really yeah. it's a it's a super weird and sophisticated scene I'll, I'll be honest with you i watch hitchcock movies on repeat mm-hmm. like i will you know so many months will go by and i'll be like i like I just, it just happened. Like it was mm-hmm. like late at night and we were like, all right guys, I'm tired. We're going to watch a Hitchcock and kids were gripped. Um, but, uh, I don't watch uh, psycho. Oh yeah. It's too much for me. Yeah. And I, well, it's funny cause I think about it's that. an excellent film. It's just too, I can't watch it very much. Well, I think it is the, the implications, uh, in the film, the things that are left in, um, like struggle or stress. Mm-hmm. Um, they really like, um, you know, it's this history of like like European like horror, which is a very very different genre than American horror. Mm-hmm. Right, American horror is really about like you know chopping heads off, arterial yeah. spray, screaming, yes, like just complete de- debasement. Um, whereas like European horror is very much in that space of like tension, 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 mm-hmm. maybe release, mm-hmm. but tension is building and building and yep. building. Um, and so there is like a, a I mean just. There's just an, a higher level of artfulness to it. Yes, like one is one is dregs and the other is it has intention and purpose to it. Um, but I think that you know, with Psycho, it's one of those things where that that tension is built up and all of those things that we don't see but we know are there. Yeah, um, and it's hard for that to really and release. And it's loaded. You have the you have the the silhouette is supposed to be the grandmother's mom. Yeah, it's old, but her movements are quick, oh, which yeah. is like which is visceral. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't it doesn't connect, and because you're denied access to who the face is. It it um, it's, it it deeply disturbs because those two things don't go together. That mm-hmm. level of movement and that level of um, the the kind of noir quality yeah. of the image, like it it it's it's a really sophisticated scene actually, mm-hmm. and it was like groundbreaking and like super shocking to everybody. Um, but I think about it and it still holds up compared to like um, just these gore, yeah, you know, slasher films like. I can't, you know, I can't watch any of that stuff, man, to be honest with you. I mean, at all. But, um, but Psycho is, is, I mean, compositionally, Psycho is amazing. Just, oh, yeah. just the, I mean, I've in, uh, been to the house, um, and it's small. It's, mm-hmm. it's weird. It's, it's foreshortening. You know, you look up at the, the house in the hill. Oh, yeah. It was, it's scaled in such a way so as to look the way you see it when in that film. So when you're looking up from down below the steps, it, 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 it like recedes away from you. It has this distancing effect. Um, and so it's like, I think it's like three quarter scale. I can't remember, but, um, 
but man, I wouldn't go inside. Yeah. I couldn't even go inside as a kid, like going to Universal Studios. It's it's a hard it's like they do a haunted house thing there. I mean, like that movie, that movie is comp if you if you watch the movie for a composition, like mm. the way the scenes are composed, it's it's like worth doing that. It's worth like watching all of Hitchcock's movie. Like watch North by Northwest and like you can find like ten paintings oh, in yeah. the scenes themselves that are like these weird flat spaces. But if you watched um Hitchcock for composition, holy smokes, like we just don't make movies like that anymore. We yeah. just don't I don't know. Yeah, sorry, total tangent. No, I think it's great. I mean, it, but it's also I think this adds a lot of weight to even just this uh just this quote from Saul Bass talking mm -hmm. about that. The fact that he was able to 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 work in such a way, I think it speaks to his like artfulness, his artful approach to things. Yeah. Um that maybe <clears throat> has been subtly over the last few decades, uh, horribly lost mm -hmm. in design school, where we have moved it to far too much of a, of a difference mm -hmm. from art. Like we've tried to make that, we've tried to entrench the two so separately um, that you wouldn't have somebody, you would have somebody that says, I go to school to be a storyboard artist mm -hmm. and I just learned how to do this. But they have no idea about what it might look like to be doing like painterly compositional work mm -hmm. in that space. Um, yeah, so... <clears throat> I've seen some great storyboard work. Yeah, yeah. But at yeah, the yeah. same time, how much of that becomes actual directorial, yeah, um, like acceptable sort of stuff? Well, you know, it's interesting storyboarding. So I mean, just so thinking about the relationship between like a poster, yeah, and a scene, and you know, there's a kind of modern flatness that was of the time, and mm -hmm. and you know, right now we're in this kind of. Um, romantic period when it comes to um realism mm -hmm. you know in like marvel films yeah yeah you know multi-perspective how many ways can i show you from the all the uh, viewpoints you'd never have like you know think about the impossibility of like 90 percent of the vantage points that you're given in like a marvel film now mm -hmm. and it's it's a um almost a, it's almost gratuitous at this point yeah um and you know world building I'm not saying these are bad things. I mean, just, this is just where we're at, though, industry-wise. Like, it's like storytelling is huge on world building. But we don't build scenes the same. Like, there, we've, yeah. there's like a lack of intimacy with scene building. Mm. Um, and scene building probably has something more to do with sequential storyboarding and graphic storytelling are much closer to proximal to each other as a, as a mode. So then you get to this optimal place where this scene happens in a Hitchcock film. Because yeah. Hitchcock also, you know, not to make this about Hitchcock, but just to say that, you know, I've said this before, but Hitchcock was notorious for storyboarding most of his films mm -hmm. and then shooting them in one take. Because yeah. if the, if, or he could give them to, to the, and, and everybody knew their, their place, they could shoot the shot and be done. And so there's something about the preemptive clarity of the storyboarding that was so clear and so exact that if it was right there, then it's right in the movie, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because I, I, I yeah. don't know much, but I, I, I have watched a lot of making of scenes. And what you see a lot of times is you'll have directors where all of that work is in the camera mm -hmm. and and you'll have exhaustive days for one shot. Yeah. So to me, what's interesting is that that someone like Bass could be um, syncopated so well with or synced up so well with Hitchcock mm -hmm. and that there had to be some kind of serious prior understanding yeah, um, and probably some kind of strange similarity 
similarly between them as far as makes sense their general mode of operandi like they they actually spoke the same language well he started bopping into these uh movies and he was just doing the film house but then he became a visual supervisor so he was doing mm-hmm. more stuff so if you look at some of the stuff he did with hitchcock he was storyboarding doing titles doing posters I yeah mean, like there was a there was an involvement there yep. That would lead me to suspect like a, a heavy relational dynamic that's totally. going on. Yeah, he was like tying tying a lot of the visual elements of the film together yeah, from yeah. beginning to end. Mm-hmm. It makes me think a lot. You know, you talk Gareth a lot about how you know designers do a lot of client work, mm-hmm. um, where you're producing you know these works of visual design for someone else for their purposes, and you know, at least the contemporary model is. Someone comes, they have a quote unquote design problem, <laughs> and then you're the or designers are the professionals who can create the design solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's interesting to listen to Bass talk and think about his relationship with Hitchcock because he's this incredible designer. Hitchcock clearly an incredible director. Yeah. And I think it would be easy to say, well, the way to make sure that my design work gets accepted 100% with no changes is to just muscle up and be like the most incredible designer ever. Mm. Or there could be a flip side where maybe someone could say, what I really need to do is I just need to go find the right client Mm. who will 100% accept everything I bring to the table because I already think I'm that that awesome of designer. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about that relationship, you know, there's something there to... How a designer and maybe a client can be well matched, such that a client can receive the goodness of what the designer is making, uh, but then the designer can actually make something good. So, what would maybe what would you chip in about that relationship as mm-hmm. being sort of both of those parts, not just one side on the designer or one side on the client? Yeah, I think it has to be like it, it has to be the essence of like collaborative. Like what we we talk about, um, yeah, because we we give a lot of lip service to collaboration. Um, you know, if you've been in certain institutions or certain kind of like corporate environments, you hear collaboration and it's like it's just a way to like pacify the people underneath to do what the people above say. Um, and so they use collaboration <clears throat> just as a as a new coded word for something else. Um, but I think it really is one of those where. Um, it is just as important for the designer to pick the clients that he or she will work with as it is for the, as we see it as the clients pick the designer. Um, because it kind of feels a little like, uh, you know, like those lineups in like cop movies where it's like the six people and like number one step forward. I think that's a lot of the ways that people feel that like design work is you kind of throw your proposal out there and then everybody's like, well, we'll see. We don't know. Maybe this, and, and you don't have any sense of agency. But I think that if you're if you're at a place where you can understand like what is what is the valuable thing that's going on here, um, which is a much bigger discussion uh, for another day. But when we when we understand what the value is, then it's easier for us to come to the table together mm-hmm. and say that valuable that that value is actually something that's kind of escapable um, if we don't work on this together. And so, in order to make sure the value is contained and we can use it uh, to our benefits. Um, we actually have to solve together mm-hmm. uh, in the ways that we can. And we see this in things like, you know, uh, like pitchers and catchers in baseball, right? Like they don't sit there and go like, oh, the pitcher is the best thing in the world. It's like, oh, but the catcher's calling the game. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, oh, well, that makes the catcher the best. It's like, no, 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 they have to work in tandem. They have to be together as a unit or you get a crappy game of baseball. Um, I think the same thing applies with client and designer. 
Um, there's a, so there's a there something in there that I, that I guess I'm thinking about that because I agree with you, but I, I'm just thinking about this out loud. Is so I'm thinking about John Williams with music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's there's times where someone someone's work and ability and kind of brilliance sort of um, becomes kind of an, an um, a thing unto itself, which which would include the working with. Mm-hmm. But you're working with and you're saying, I'm not having you, you're not submissive or subordinate to my yeah. vision. Um, we are full collaborators with, yes. we want John Williams to do John Williams. 100%. So so there's like a, a level of excellence. So Saul Bassett, it's like saying the same thing about Bassett. So it's like you get to the point where you're not an anonymous person. Yeah. This is rare too. It's rarefied air. It's like there's not like, so there's people that can make music scores for a film and and they can do the work serviceably and it, and it can work, but you're not, they're not going to come in and have any authority. Right. Um, and so I think, I think that's interesting when you find someone who can do exactly what they want to do and it's exactly serviceable. There's no compromise. That's a really yeah. interesting syncopate. Like that, that I think there's another, link up. another part of that I think is, you know, even with like, Saul Bass, it's like, you know, somebody like AT&T or United Airlines would be like, we want a Saul Bass logo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that's the stylistic quality we want, mm-hmm. you know, which it, it gets into that thing of like, you know, why? Because you could say like Hans Zimmer and John Williams, like they're they're probably going to be just completely fine at whatever you hire them to do. Mm-hmm. But there's a different quality about them where, uh, you know, John Williams may be a bit more, um, you know, in the line of like Americana, like, uh, you know, Philip Sousa, yeah. um, you know, uh, into more like kind of uh, expansionist sort of like American music, mm-hmm. whereas Hans Zimmer is going to be much more like environmental, um, like ethereal in some places. And so it's it's like saying, well, if, if I want that, then I need him. Yep. Or yeah. if I want that, I need her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that is the place you want to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but early career, a lot of it is a bunch of hands out being like, please, please don't abuse me in this relationship because yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it can happen really easily. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's an interesting question. And this is maybe from my ignorance, but so early career, the way you say that makes it sound like you're a little designer trying to work for really big organizations. I mean, that would be the hope, right? Because I think a lot of times we think that if we just can latch onto that big star, then that like yanks us forward, um, in a lot of ways. But I think there's also something very different about, uh, designers in mid century, mid 20th century, um, in terms of what was going on, uh, the ubiquity of design was not really there yet. It was still a very small club of people doing things. Um, and it wasn't something where everybody had access or tools. So you had, it, it was kind of easier to stake that claim. It's harder now because everybody can get onto Dribble or Behance and have a portfolio that mm-hmm. makes them look like they're really amazing, but have nothing to back it up. Yeah. And so, um, there have been times I've shown people work that is, I think is excellent work I've done. And like, that's great. That's awesome. And like, okay, cool. It was for nobody. Like it was for like nobody you'd ever know. Um, and then I haven't showed any work and just been like, and I've worked for these companies and like, Oh wow, that's really impressive. And I'm like, you should see the work. It's not impressive. It's yeah. actually bad mm. work Yeah. because I didn't have any say in that relationship. Yeah. Um, and it was all based on a you know 300 page brand style guide that this corporation had to do things and all of it was just stiff and terrible. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a, there's, there is that sort of like, if I can just land this client, then I'll be set. 
And, you know, we, we've had students, we've had friends, we've known people who have like hit that big client and, and it hasn't actually done that. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't mean that you're not, you're not raising the ceiling with every client. Mm -mm. So you're not like, Oh, that ceiling knocked me up three or four floors. So now that's, that's where I start going forward. It'd be nice, but you can have an amazing client still go back to some, you know, mom and pop thing locally that doesn't really pay much. Mm -hmm. Um, just the nature of it. But, um, disaster. <laughs> so the, the 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 last one I think I, we want to talk about, like this is one uh, that I really wanted to get your take on, Ryan, because I was going through listening to some Saul Bass stuff. I was like, this is uh, this is something I want Ryan to hear, and I want him to to say his piece on. So let's check this out. Learn to draw. If you don't, you're going to live your life getting around that yeah. and trying to compensate for that. It's like now. So when the problem is there. Instead of doing a drawing when you have to do it, you know, to, to, to deal with the communication issue, you find another lesser way to do it. And it's like you have to do this. Instead of forthrightly dealing with it, you have to sort of turn your arm and twist your shoulder and, and do a solution that comes out as a square or a triangle or a, or a, or a, or a circle, you know, and that's ridiculous. You can't get away with that. It's a crippling absence. Yeah, so I just wanted to get your take on it. So yeah, his, I mean, I always love the question that's, that's always there for every designer. What would you What would you tell students? Um, and so this one was great because it was. It, I mean, he was just very straightforward with it. There was no real thinking, and he just busted out with "Learn to draw." Yeah, the great New York accent. Yes, learn to draw. Even when you, even if you're working with, like, you're like, I'm working with, you know, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of some of the. I'm I'm really sleep deprived. We're in into finals and so i'm a little tired i'm also on a diet so my brain is like going through withdrawal um so my memory is like whoa but uh i'm forgetting some of the programs but if you it doesn't matter if the technology can get you certain rendering effects like right if you can't draw it does it still shows up you can still tell like it yeah. still doesn't it's still not what it can what it should be and if someone can draw then it's like whoa um and so yeah I, I have too much to say, honestly, like as a response, because it just turned in grades and, and um, I don't want to get in trouble. But <laughs> well, the lack of interest in drawing and the lack of awareness for what that means in terms of thinking visually, mm-hmm. in terms of like the like you said, the value to communicate, like you have to solve problems and it's the most direct way to mm-hmm. do that. But if you don't know how to do it, then you're you're stunted by your inability. And, and I would just say that this is the jerkiest thing I'll say. Whole MFAs and BFAs in painting and are built on his point about avoiding drawing. Mm, yeah. So the avoiding of knowing how to do it and twisting your arm and, you know, it is a way of, of saying that like, and I'm not, here's the thing. Don't draw. I don't care. Like it's your, you yeah, know, yeah. Do, do your thing. Like I'm not, I'm just saying though, that there is a lot of shenanigans, um, that goes into intellectualizing and, um, explaining why your work is the way that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's like a compensation built out of the lack of ability to draw directly. And, 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 um, and I don't mean like photorealist drawing. I don't even mean that at all. I mean, just understanding space, shape, form, light, just, sequencing of flat 
space like where does this go on the page and what should it look mm-hmm. like what angle is it at like um designing the space right yeah. um so so uh and there's there for every hundred people that don't make it there's the one that does it doesn't as in a drawer but it's like but they have high facility in some kind of unique way like there's something there yeah, yeah. that's an intangible so um the idea that we can't be bothered with being exposed for where we're at so that we might learn how to be better at it mm-hmm. drives me bonkers. Yeah, for me, it, it, the the thing about it is that, well, let me t- take a step back. Um, when I was learning design, I th- always thought it was interesting that they put um, like two-dimensional design as like digital and analog mm-hmm. and that somehow they were like very sim- similar. Mm-hmm. So as I'm going into Illustrator and connecting a bunch of vectored points, like that's the same thing as mm-hmm. drawing by hand, um, which didn't ever feel like the same thing. Because I there there is this there is this difficulty in terms of space and relationship mm-hmm. that is it, it's hard to get that to happen in a digital space. Yeah, you don't feel the same way because it's it's so incredibly flat. Yeah. Um, and you might argue like, oh well, the you know, plainly speaking, like it's 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 all flat. It's like yeah, it's all flat, but like one is actually like in a tangible space. One has yeah. some some things to hold on to. The um, reality of going off the page onto your table or your easel or yeah. your wall or whatever it is, like that that experiential space and the actual scale, mm-hmm. whatever the scale is for what you're working on. And I've been teaching drawing, you know, online. And when you're working with a tablet, um. That is a reality, but you are being, you know, like I, I haven't become proficient at it because I'm so old school with needing to, to look at my page and draw mm-hmm. and have my whole body and all of these other factors. So when I'm drawing from, you know, a six by eight inch um, space below me and I'm looking up at the screen mm-hmm. and not seeing what my hand is doing, but I'm seeing it's a re-coordinating. It's a, and, and you know, there's, I mean, here's the thing, like there are people that do incredible work. So like, oh, yeah. like I see, I know, I know people right now at our university that are like can paint, draw and, and work digitally. And I, I have no problem. I mean, I think it's amazing. Like mm-hmm. I can see it, but um, I think legions of students coming in who the most that their fingers do is click up and down yeah. and, and like, like their hand-eye coordination is, is really, really, catastrophically low mm-hmm. so that is going to create default design or non-design and non-design or default design that compensates for their lack of um sort of embodied intangibles when it mm-hmm. comes to hand-eye coordination and these these sort of reasoning design thinking realities when that's absent or atrophying that means that what is serviced or, or like how people are serviced and what is given to them as you know for, for clients or whatever is going to be displaying something it's not neutral so it's going to be displaying a, an erosion mm-hmm. um, of this fact yeah and you're going to see a lot of ubiquity because you can't individuate without um, language and without obtaining the obtaining of the ability to communicate Mm-hmm. So if drawing is uh, a communicative tool that allows for language to expand and you have retracted that or you've um, diminished that, you've brought everybody to the same space, rendering the same outcomes essentially. 
and then having to compensate by calling them different, but they're not actually like there's no individual. There's no real. Um, it's not even, it's not individuality. It's specificity. Mm. So there's no specificity. And the more we experience a pervasive lack of specificity, the more we become non-specific. Makes um, sense. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you used that word language because as I was listening to you guys, and I'm not like a draftsman or, or anything like that, but it. it Asking someone to do works of design or the work of an artist without having like a that fundamental of visual language, it seems like asking a student to be like, you don't really need to learn how to speak. Mm-hmm. You just need to get a lot of books and cut out sentences and paste them all together to sort of like make the things that you want to make and communicate the way. So a lot of it's built out of previous work that other people have done mm-hmm. who could speak and then you potentially waste a lot of time because there is a directness when mm-hmm. you do like when i have the ability to just speak my thought i can sort of activate something very quickly mm-hmm. and see how it works in the air and then step back revise my statements you know have a conversation um and I, from the bit of drawing that i've done i feel like it's similar where you when it's in your hand, you can make those marks, work out the image on the page. And I, I'm just imagining like if, if you couldn't draw and you had to just like collage everything mm-hmm. as your first step mm-hmm. of trying to ideate or yeah, trying to figure out like You're, how yeah. just laborious and slow and murky that would be yeah. if I had to like download a bunch of images off uh, Google and then pull them into a digital space and like snip them up and try to like merge them and, and get all the effects right and there'd be all this stuff. Um, it just seems, you know, drawing has an efficiency to it that obviously is not its end goal, um, but certainly a, there's a, a practical element. No, that, I've said- like a guy like Saul Bass just couldn't do what he did, which we all recognize is pretty amazing. Yeah. if he couldn't draw. Well, that's the thing is you wouldn't he his voice wouldn't show up in the design. It would right. be the fragmentation of someone else's voice. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're seeing now. So d- drawing is so democratic. It's so pervasive. It's so um, economical. It's so accessible and immediate and intimate. And I think uh, as a as a you know not to harp on this, but as a uh, when you become fear based about whether or not you're enough, uh, drawing can even for me like I, you know like in some ways I'm not as good at drawing. In some ways, I'm, I'm, I'm because I because I paint more. Um, I don't draw the way I used to at all. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, as a drawing person, like, I mean, I teach drawing, you know, for for the university I'm at. But um, so I correct people's drawings. You know, you do certain kinds of demos, but like, uh, it's not my first thing, and I've lost a lot of it. And so I even feel the pressure when I draw because I'm like, oh gosh, I'm not what I used to be. I draw for my kids, and I'm like, this is not not where it was it's not as, it's not as on my brain's not thinking in this way anymore um and so my point in saying that is to say like it, it puts you on notice right away mm-hmm. you're like hey I, this is where i'm at mm-hmm. um i think also one thing with withdrawing is that it's a really great uh it's a really perfect mediator between people um because uh it is like you said it's highly democratic um you know like and 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 really anybody can do it if what they're trying to do is not like photorealistic, like hyper realistic drawing. Yes. 
So anybody can draw. Anybody can make a mark. Yeah. Right? Anybody can drag graphite yeah, across the page. You got to try. You got to really try. And so, you know, with students, um, there's always, you're always kind of telling them like, hey, your first step is going to be like hop on your computer because you're so used to just clicking with your finger and dragging mm -hmm. around. But your first step, because it is this really democratic thing as a fantastic mediator, is if you're doing the client-based work or you're trying to get a concept across to somebody, you will be quicker drawing. So it will be a more efficient process. Yes, yeah, right. In front also, of since it's not done digitally on a computer, there is an expectation that it's not complete yet. So there's there's something that happens when you're having that conversation with another person that actually makes the conversation work better if it's a drawing and not mm -hmm. some printed out thing. Um, because they look at that and they say, oh, yeah, I see where you're headed with this. Because the I computer the aesthetic, the aesthetic is always um, always plausibly finished. Right. Because of, because of the finishing quality that mm -hmm. Illustrator or Photoshop yep. brings with it as an inherent 100%. effect of the medium. Yeah. Whereas the drawing, drawing becomes propositional. Mm -hmm. So the, the elusivity creates uh, plausibility and freedom for negotiating. Yeah. Um, and when you're negotiating with clients or people that don't see, mm -hmm. um, it's it's literally like, the you know, it's it, I always go back to the watching the shows where they um, re remodel houses for people. Yeah. And people can't see through, through to the structure. You yeah. know, so it's hard to imagine what will be there. Or also, so on the one hand, if you come into a framed house and it's all framed but it's gutted, it's hard for people to see what it's going to look like. It takes ability, but it, it, it's probably easier to say, well, this is where this will go and this is where that will go. Mm -hmm. And it stays in this propositional space that feels good and open. Whereas when you come into a house and it's already been done and you're trying to convince a, a buyer to buy it, we'll gut it. Well, it's hard to see past the finish that is mm -hmm. for most people unless you're trained, you know? So what I'm, so what I'm trying to say here is, um, the trained person um, affords themselves a kind of freedom in yeah. serviceability to to clients in a in a way that's actually like thoughtful and considerate of them, mm -hmm. because they are not vocationally spending their time honing their eye this way. They may have it by happenstance, but on average, that's not their common experience. Yeah. So you're you're creating freedom for them and freedom for you in your ability to render an idea uh, in a propositional prior to way yeah um in terms of um the the, the rendering on the computer 100 i think that's a, that's a really interesting idea that i would not have thought of but it makes so much sense about how the computer pushes forward that sense of finishness especially because a lot of design work these days the finished nature of its presentation is going to be on a computer mm -hmm. um and i think about like if i just like had a novel that i just wrote the first draft and i was like i just want to you know like pitch this to someone so i'm going to go and i'm going to get it really nicely bound and like it's going to have all these finishings to it yeah that when you receive the book you're like oh this is something that feels like it's done yeah mm -hmm. and then you open up you start reading you're like oh, this is like a first draft like this doesn't make sense you've copy and pasted stuff around and it would create a confusion yeah um or or they wouldn't be able to see all of the problems in the draft and they would just consume it as it is, and, and then and then it would become a taste consumption. So then it would just become I prefer it or I don't. Hmm. And so then you so then you don't get any interaction because it's just been consumed. So I consumed it and I didn't like it. Yeah. 
Well, I could tell you why I didn't like it, but it would be speaking from that of a consumer, not a collaborator, yeah. not, a, not a client, not a not a understanding of this is the first of three drafts or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because like mm-hmm. we we know people who work in user design, you know, designing elements of mobile websites and apps and like all their sketchbooks, all their initial wireframes, it's all done on paper, even though they're like it's explicitly designed for a digital end. Mm-hmm. Um they're still sketching out their initial ideas and blocking it off and getting the the basic shapes and spaces and visual elements mm-hmm. set up on paper first before they're ever committing anything digitally. Yeah. Uh, which of course the conversation's not just uh, digital versus analog. Um, but I think we assume the digitalness so much. Yeah, that's the thing is the the drawing is assumed. And again, some people will listen and say, well, I draw digitally. It's like, no, no, I know that I'm not saying mm-hmm. that you don't, be, but you draw, you know how to draw. Mm-hmm. The point is you know how to draw. I think um, there is a, I don't care. I've been at, I, I'm like this. I just finished my 15th year teaching at VCU. And I can tell you that there is a gross decline in hand-eye motor mm-hmm. coordination skills. And it's wedded to also a, an impatience and an inability to focus and a lack of desire to bear with anything difficult. And when you put all of those together, you actually have people that can't do things. Yeah. And, and they think you're being a jerk and you're like, I'm not being a jerk. I'm telling you, you're, you're, um, the convenience of technology is robbing you of your individual, your specific voice, your individuated voice, and you will have very little to bring forward. I, I can't, and, and the only and the only way you'll be able to is if we lower the qualitative reality we exist within to meet you at your below, like sub 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 standard ability, non ability. Like yeah. you know, like I got my kids are pretty committed drawers, just intuitively. Like they just, my son, I got up a couple mornings ago, and he's got this book that he's making. Where it's a um, it's a comic book that's like I don't know two inches thick or an inch and a half thick that he bought, but it um, it has all the frames are set up, but there's nothing in them. So he's nice. He's just cooking through. And I got up a couple mornings ago, and I came downstairs at seven o'clock, and he was up already downstairs working quietly by himself, just ferociously drawing. And it's like I wish my students had that uh-huh. because no one told him to wake up. He's seven. Nobody told him to wake up. He got up and he he carries the book with him and he walks around with his six sketchbooks and he. It's like that thing, and he's not making like awesome drawings, but he is. Like, yeah. you know, he's not like, he's not, what I mean by that, he's not making like Michelangelo drawings, but he's like, his um, intensity, his frequency, his constancy, his desire, it's all there. And when you see it, it's it like, he, may, he and my nine year old have made better drawings than some of my students. It's, well, you know, and I think it's a you know, it's a good point because um, when you look at somebody like Saul Bass, some of the stuff we've talked about this morning, um, and the fact that he was not predominantly using a computer, like you could start to have the argument that we may never see designers like that. We would see different types of designers with different amazing abilities, but mm-hmm. we may not see designers like that. Yeah, um, you know, I, and I don't think that's an unfair statement to to say, at least in conversation, to be able to bat around. Um, but I think it is also just a, a realization that, that the folks like this, like they actually, they are an amazing pedigree that we get to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, uh, you know, really fantastic at what they've done, and they've left a fantastic legacy that we get to just enjoy and mm-hmm. just have conversations like this and even more. Um, 
but yeah, I think, you know, for the, for, for this week, at least, I think, you know, we've, unless we want to veer into some of these topics a bit more, uh, but I think these are separate episodes. Yes. Um, I think, I think we're kind of at a good, uh, good spot to say, check out uh, Saul Bass. Yeah. Check them out. Also, uh, a last point about his drawing, just go look at his signature. Okay. Just look at his signature and then listen again to what he said about drawing. I'm just going to leave it there. So, um, we love you guys. You're fantastic audience. And uh, we will catch you next time. See ya. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Box.